0: Before we jump back into the story, I want to give credit and many thanks to the award winning director Robert Bahar for letting me use clips from his 1997 documentary Laid to Waste A Chester Neighborhood Fights for Its Future. I wasn't born until a year after its release, so it would have been kind of hard for me to personally collect these interviews myself. Many of the audio clips in this half of the episode are from his film.
1: Keep
0: Leading up to the Chester incinerator being built in 1991, Westinghouse wasn't the only facility seeking touchdown on Chester soil. Over the course of a 10-year period, seven waste facilities were permitted to move into Chester. In 1992, Reverend Horace Strand had enough.
2: I'm just a uh, citizen who lives in a community that was invaded by solid waste.
0: And um, also, we dealt with the clustering effect of Uh, various unfriendly uh, environmental facilities that
2: was uh, situated in our community in a very short period of time. I basically uh, dealt with the effects of it, the smell, the
0: stench, the noise and trash. And um, as I dealt with those effects, I began to learn the cause of it and uh, found out that uh, we had been invaded by and the fourth largest to steam plant in the nation. Reverend Strand organized a team of regular citizens and environmental advocates called Chester Residents Concerned for Quality Living. But since the acronym looks like it's pronounced CIRCLE, that's what they went by. Now let's meet CIRCLE's main players. Reverend Strand, the ringleader, organizing some of the largest protests against the incinerator. Zelene Mayfield, the spokesperson. Her public speaking skills and ability to empathize made her the voice of CIRCLE. Mike Ewall, the youth. This recent college grad stirred young activism for the group and helped them go digital. Thaddeus Kirkland, the politician. Kirkland worked with Chester City Council to bolster their sway on the board. And finally, Jerry Balter, the lawyer. Balter was an attorney assigned to work on environmental justice issues for a law firm in Philadelphia. And when he saw what was happening with Circle and Chester, he didn't just see a good case, he saw a game-changer. Jerry Balter worked with Circle to both educate residents on what was going on with their heir and see if there was any legal recourse. Together, they filed several lawsuits over the course of five years, but there were two that actually brought Chester into the limelight. Circle brought groundbreaking cases to two different high courts, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania and the Supreme Court of the United States. Let's take a look at the first. Case number one. Circle v. ThermoPure Medical Waste Treatment. ThermoPure is a company that takes in infectious medical waste and incinerates it. While the state of Pennsylvania only generated 80 tons of medical waste a day, the Pure plant in Chester was permitted to take in 288. While that disparity is unsettling, the state permitted it, so Circle didn't have much legal ground to contest them. For a while, it was looking like Thermopure was going to be able to burn hundreds of thousands of tons of toxic medical waste into Chester's air. But when you are taking in that much toxic waste, you are bound to slip up at some point, and Balter knew that. Eventually, Thermopure's boiler malfunctioned, making them unable to process waste for a given period of time. As a result, they left 19 truckloads filled with medical waste outside of its facility for more than six days. Balzer claimed this negligence defied their permit, as leaving hot, festering medical waste out in the open caused unmeasurable harm to nearby residents. Had Circle not been there to keep a tight eye on Thermapure, no one may have ever known. The legal proceeding went as follows. Circle lost in the first court and filed for an appeal. After winning the appeal, the court revoked Thermapure's permit and ordered them to shut down. However, the facility only remained closed for about a week or two, The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania invoked what's called the King's Bench Jurisdiction. This is an archaic and seldom used practice from the colonial era that the PA Supreme Court, unlike other states, never got rid of. Basically it works like this. Since the Supreme Court is the highest court in Pennsylvania, it is able to reach down to any court below it, whether it's an appellate court, a common pleas court, or even a traffic court, and pull a case from that level right up to the Supreme Court and hear it in front of them. Hence the name. A king has the right to hear whatever plea they want since it's their court. When this happened to Circle's case, it shocked both Democrats and Republicans alike. King's bench overrules all traditional laws and procedures by asserting overarching authority to reach down and grab a case and do basically whatever they want with it. Well they decided to yoink up Circle's case and open Thermopure. Due to King's bench, Thermopure was able to continue operating without a permit for 150 days. This use of King's Bench was so controversial that the state bipartisanly moved to investigate the Supreme Court. They actually ended up impeaching one of the Supreme Court justices for criminal conspiracy on the court. During his trial, the impeached justice ousted one of his colleagues, Justice DePaula, for invoking King's Bench deliberately to reverse Circle's case. Why you may ask? Well, it may have to do with Justice DePaula's brother being the landlord for many of Chester's waste sites. I'll let Balter himself explain.
3: RRZ stands for Russell, Ray, that's REA, and Zapala. These guys are investment bankers. I think it was somewhere back in 1978 that they bought this big piece of land in uh, Chester. They are the landlords of the property on which the Westinghouse incinerator sits. They are the landlord for thermal pure systems, and they would be the landlord for soil remediation systems. It is a uh, conglomerate holding company of some sort, I suppose, in Pittsburgh. And um, Charles Zapala, the Z of RRZ, is the brother of Stephen Zapala, Supreme Court judge of Pennsylvania. To put this plant here, a plant with a capacity four to five times the total capacity of infectious waste generated in all of Pennsylvania, that was the first step of environmental racism. And that has now been perpetuated by the Supreme Court and King's Bench.
0: Case number two, Circle v. Seif. I know, you probably forgot there were two cases. That was a lot. And while this one is a bit shorter, it is probably more important. In this case, Balcher sued the PA Department of Environmental Protection, otherwise known as the DEP, for giving a company a permit to pollute in Chester despite community backlash and several other facilities already being permitted in the city. For context on how remarkable this was, only 0.01% of cases like this that are submitted to the Supreme Court actually get approved. The media swarmed this case because it was the first case to cite the Civil Rights Act for purposes of environmental justice. In short, this thing could set major precedent. Environmentalists and corporate execs were all watching to see if people can sue on the grounds of environmental justice. Depending on how they ruled, regulations and permits could receive a major overhaul. There was all this excitement until it was a moot court. In the middle of the case, the company withdrew the permit in question. All of a sudden, there was no case anymore, and thus no chance in setting a precedent. While Circle was able to win the battle and defeat the waste facility, it didn't even get a chance to win the war that is all discriminatory permits. The Supreme Court didn't get to set a precedent on this issue until 2001, in Alexander v. Sandoval, where in a nail-biting 5-4 decision, the court ruled against what was originally Circle's stance. The difference of one vote in this case set a precedent that prevents community groups like Circle from being able to legally challenge industries for clustering in their homes. Why the DEP revoked the permit and rendered Circle's case moot is still unknown. While Circle had many successful legal battles, a lot of their fighting took place in the streets. Their most famous activism took place in front of the Chester Incinerator. Circle members and other residents crowded in front of the plant's main entrance one hot summer morning to block trash trucks from entering the facility. As with most human blockades, their resolve was strong. Zuline... The spokesperson led the group. We've
2: talked for three years, and for three years we've gotten more facilities. So we're not going to do that anymore. You know, if we we have to stand on the line in 100-degree weather to let people understand how serious we are about saving ourselves, then we'll do that. If we're going to get run over by trucks, then we'll do it.
0: During the protest, a city councilman was picketing with them and was recorded talking to one of the halted truckers.
1: I'm a city councilman, they live here, we live here, we're tired of the trash. That's so you right. need to go back where you were and just tell them we wouldn't let you in, it's not your fault. That's what I'm telling You just them. caught up in the middle, That's but you right. ain't getting in there today. Okay. That's right.
4: And, I, and we blocked you. That's right. Yeah. We, the whole committee, we we. From the city to the citizens. They All said, right. Take it back where you got it.
0: One of Circle's main arguments is that these waste treatment plants don't treat residents as actual neighbors. They criticized companies for disregarding human life in exchange for profit. These concerns were reinforced when a trucker who was ordered not to stop ended up injuring a protester. The former head of the incinerator came out to apologize not only for the incident, but strangely for the incinerator itself.
1: I'd like to extend on behalf of Westinghouse and the Resource Recovery Facility an official apology to the community for this type of action, although that was not One of the regular drivers who comes in here, it was one of the bosses of the drivers, he jumped in the truck and he drove the truck and and I understand he almost hit somebody. So we are very sorry this incident happened. I think there was a lack of of foresight to build a facility of this size, so close to uh, residences. I can't apologize for that. I will not even attempt to apologize for that, uh, recognizing that this situation exists. And um, it doesn't make people feel comfortable to know that the largest resource recovery facility in the nation is right in their backyard. It's something that will still need to be dealt with.
0: Despite the plant's apologies, Events continued to heat up. Circle drafted community health surveys, and we're going to distribute them to residents to gauge the health of the community now that the incinerator is here. The surveys were printed and stored in Circle's office. The next day, this happened.
2: Monday at about 1.30 in the afternoon, we had people that came into the office to do some work and to run the surveys. And they discovered that we had been vandalized I guess they got in through this, the kitchen window, so I don't know if this is in, has something to do with the health survey or if it's just general intimidation. I believe it's just general intimidation. But that was the only thing that was taken from the office. Uh, they took all of the blank health survey forms. So if it has significance, I don't know, but I can't see why anybody else would want them when we're the only ones that are doing it. But we're just going to clean up, move forward, and continue with our work.
0: Circle's office was broken into. What you couldn't see from just this audio clip were the KKK markings left on the kitchen wall. This wasn't just a burglary. This was a threat. Circle's battles were not confined to courts or picket lines, and oftentimes, individual activists are targeted. Whoever Circle's opposition was, they would send anonymous threats to activists to intimidate them from acting. One Circle member, who's received threats himself, sent a message back to the intimidators in the 1997 documentary. Those kind of activities are just shadows. The shadow of a gun can't
2: kill, the shadow of a knife cannot stab, and the shadow of a dog cannot bark. Of course, the gun is present, the knife is present, and the dog is there, but we're not running from shadows. We're not going to turn back. We're
0: not afraid. We're not afraid. Since Zuline was their spokesperson, she received the brunt of the threats. I'm about to play one of the voicemails an anonymous number left for Zuline as a threat. Now, take a second, set the mood. Imagine you're home alone at night. You're in bed, lights are off, phone buzzes, you pick it up and you hear this.
2: You better watch it back when you play in my backyard. That was the first message. Another song is about, something about war. If I knew that's what you wanted all along, I'd have gave it to you a long time ago or something. And then they just the general bitches and uh, get out of the city. You better get out of the city or
0: something. You know, it's all intimidation. Despite police knowledge of the break-ins, no thorough investigation found the perpetrators. Whether it implicated Circle or not, remember that the legacy of the corrupt political machine is still lingering in Chester in the 90s. Activists and citizens like Zuline are openly skeptical about the relationship between the city and the waste facilities. Listen to this coffee shop owner explain the events that unfolded one eerie afternoon.
2: We see fire engines coming down both sides on both streets, Thurlow and Highland and we see smoke and we smell smoke and we see the fire chief there and we see numerous police cars and there's no fire and we go back the following month after the fire and they tell us you didn't see a fire you didn't smell a fire there was no fire police chief said there was a fire but he's wrong there is no fire so if i wasn't secure within myself i really felt like i had my tail between my legs when i walked out of each meeting because they always made us Try to make us think that what was happening wasn't happening.
0: Particularly after years of illegal activities in government, average Chester residents were highly suspicious of corporate entanglements. Zelene told me a story during our first interview that has stuck with me whenever I hear about how corruption still lingers in Chester. It goes like this. In 1992, Zeline and Circle helped elect the first Democratic mayor of Chester since 1905, a massive blow to McClure's Republican machine. A few years later, Zuline hopped on her re-election campaign. On the night of the election, there was a break-in. The next morning, the mayor found several bullets left on her desk with her name engraved on them. She lost the election, and according to Zuline, never returned to the city. Events like these made Zuline think these threats were not going to go away. The people closest to Zuline saw the uneven number of threats she was receiving compared to the rest of Circle, even today, Mike Ewall, who was once the youth of Circle, can recount them vividly.
4: Their office shut down. There was an emergency appeal, money for their office. Their office had already been broken into twice, once with KKK scrawled on the wall. So whenever they say, oh, it's not about race. It's just because they're poor. Well, if it's not about race, why do they have KKK scrawled on the wall? Their office was broken into a second time. It's just, just ridiculous to pretend that's not about race when you see things like that happening. But... There was an arson attempt on her home, like they actually lit fires in both entrances to her home. Tires slashed, numerous um, types of intimidation.
0: Even for someone as resilient as Duleen, all this intimidation can get to you. It, It compiles. Mike saw how these threats not only affected her as an activist, but how it wore on her person.
4: So after a lot of things, she even lost her job through her activism, Um, then due to a settlement with the sludge incinerator, which was the largest source of arsenic in the community, they ended up, that money went to the community program that she ended up running um, for Chester Lead Poisoning Prevention Program, and the city and county would sabotage that and make sure the test couldn't get done on time and just did a lot of things to really make that difficult too after she was working there um, when she lost her previous job.
0: To make matters even more tragic, Zuline started to lose a lot of family members to cancer around this time. The health problems she's dedicated her life to preventing were penetrating her inner circle. She spent a decade leading the fight in Chester, but in 2001, she fled. To ensure her protection during her exile, Mike and others hid her identity. They refused to comply with reporters or even share her information with former colleagues. She had spent years of fighting for the survival of her home, and it was time that she fought for her own life. In the face of relentless shadows of threats, Zeline became one herself.
2: I've lost a little bit of my sense that um, you matter in the system, as far as the system concerned. Um, I'm very fortunate though, I'm very fortunate that my mother grounded some real values into her kids. Some values that it's it, it it not a person out there that can shake them, that could tell me that my life is insignificant. It would just never happen.
0: Thank you for listening to episode two of Chester is Rising, The Investigative Exposé. In the next episode, we will pause on Zuline's story to dive into the dismal science and economics of the U.S. waste industry. This is David DeMarco, and thank you for listening. Writing and reporting for this podcast was produced by The Voice You're Hearing Right Now. Thank you again to Derek and PJ from Shelby Row Productions for editing this episode. And of course, a massive thank you to filmmaker Robert Bahar for letting me borrow some clips. Ever since Late to Waste, we are all following in your footsteps.